Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, you know there are an awful lot of things our parents never tell us about themselves. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to a man who made an interesting discovery about his dad from the 1930s with a little help from his uncle. Plus, I'll be chatting with Marissa Gardner, an expert researcher who will share some of her secrets about passenger and immigration lists. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And if you're new to the show, welcome. We're glad to have you. We like to share stories that people discover and also share with you information on how to find your family information. And we've got an expert guest coming up for you here in about 10 minutes, Marissa Gardner. She's with Legacy Tree Genealogists. She'll be talking about passenger lists and immigration and emigration records and a lot of stuff in there that I don't think you necessarily knew about. You're going to find out about it coming right up. Plus, later in the show, another ordinary person with an extraordinary find. It's Andrew Malikoff from Long Island, New York. He discovered something fascinating about his dad back in the 1930s that he had no idea about. Boy, our parents hid a lot from us, didn't they? Yeah, he got a little assist from his late uncle, and Andrew will tell you that story coming up. Hey, don't forget to sign up for our weekly Genie newsletter. You can do it very easily. It's absolutely free. Go to our website, ExtremeGenes.com, or work through our Facebook page. Right now, it's time to head out to Stoughton, Massachusetts, and the home of David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. David, how the heck are you? I'm doing good. I'm actually doing something kind of fun. I'm really? heading up to New Hampshire with my family. My daughter, my youngest daughter, is turning 17, which makes me feel really old. Yep. And I'm going to recreate some photos that were taken when we went to Storyland in Glen, New Hampshire in the early 1970s when I was wearing suede fringed green and brown jackets that I don't know why my mother put on me. <laughs> I want to see those pictures, five. David. I want to see them. And you've got some other news happening right in your neighborhood right now. We do. Last week, Mayflower 2 returned to Plymouth Harbor. And the Mayflower 2 is a 64-year-old recreation of the original Mayflowers to the best of their knowledge of what it would have looked like. It has been in Mystic, Connecticut, undergoing a multi-million dollar restoration over the past three years. So she's safely home in Plymouth. That's great. I saw it in 2008. I was out there. It was the only time I've ever visited Plymouth. And at that time, I did not know I was a Mayflower descendant, but I was admiring this ship. It's a, a fabulous thing, and a lot of people can go and tour it and get a feel for what it had to be like to be below deck on the Mayflower. Not pretty. Well, I'll tell you, sometimes you find things below deck. In this case, it's below floorboards. Our next story from ExtremeGenes.com there is a manor out in Oxford Hall in Norfolk, England, and under the boards of the floors of this Tudor house and in the attic, they found pieces of paper dating back to the 15th century and a rat's nest. Wow. Yeah. And a, uh, there was like a Bible and, and a box of chocolates. I mean, and it's full wrapping With from like wrappers. World War II or yeah. something. I mean, yeah. Terry's gold leaf chocolate assortments. 
Hopefully there's none in there that the rats didn't take away. Oh, well, and, you know, they were shut down because of COVID. So they had this time and they started going through the rafters and all these different places and found this incredible stuff. And wouldn't you know that it would be the mice that were the great preservationists for this stuff at Norfolk Hall? Digging deeper and going a little further north, some older artifacts have been found. There's a lot of metal detectors in Europe looking for Roman, Anglo-Saxon treasure that may be buried under the old plowed fields of England. Well, in Scotland, a metal detector has found this hoard of Bronze Age buckles and horse harnesses, and it's amazing what he had located. And now it's an archaeological dig that's taken days, not just digging in the ground, pulling up a coin. Wow. And, and this goes back, what, to like 1000 BC or something like that? Oh, yeah. Bronze Age uh, definitely is dating that far back. What do they say? 1000 BC to 900 BC. And it's, it's amazing. And this is the most complete horse harness they've ever found. And it's preserved by the soil. And the, they also found a sword. Can you imagine going to the metal detector and finding a sword as a kid? <laughs> I found pull tabs. And occasionally, like pennies. That's about it. No swords. Yeah, I think the uh, metal detecting thing, you'd have to have a certain amount of patience for that. You know, there's an interesting story that isn't thousands of years old or 400 years old like the Mayflower. It's 116 years old. Well, maybe 115 years old. The oldest American, Hester Ford, who was born in Lancaster, South Carolina, when Teddy Roosevelt was a president. And Fisher, you're going to love this family dimension. Ready for the amount of DNA matches she could have. She had 12 children, 48 grandchildren, 108 great-grandchildren, and about 120 great-great-grandchildren. And she's still with us. This is the thing. And they're not really sure whether she's 116 or 115. Wow. I mean, I guess it could be like Satchel Paige, the goat ate the birth record. And <laughs> guess what? She'd be about as old as Satchel Paige. Yeah, that's that's true. I think he was born in 1907 or something like that. So, yeah. so happy birthday. So whatever year he wanted to be. Yeah, happy birthday, Hester. That's, that's incredible. Great. And to the family, I mean, what a great celebration that's got to be. It's got to be tough to be stuck with the whole COVID thing going on. But nonetheless, what an accomplishment. And how many people get to see that many decisions? How many does she have now, total? It's got to be over 260. I think I kind of roughly <laughs> ran the numbers on my head. That's of one person. She started having kids when she was a teenager. This year, there's probably more being born with 108 great-grandchildren sure. and 48 grandchildren. I think she's sadly outlived her own kids. Yeah, I, I would think that, uh, that it would be very difficult for her to keep up the birthday card list, you know? Oh, but just think of how many Christmas gifts she could potentially get. <laughs> I suppose that's true. It's amazing. All right. Thanks so much, Dave. We'll talk to you in a little bit as we do another round of Ask Us Anything. You know, it's one thing to get the names and the dates and the places, but let's face it, there's nothing more exciting than putting together the story of our ancestors. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'm talking to Marissa Gardner. She's a researcher with our friends at Legacy Tree Genealogists, and Marissa recently wrote a great article talking about passenger lists on various ships and some of the things that they can tell us, and and of course, it's another major piece of your ancestors' stories. Marissa, welcome to Extreme Genes. Great to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, I'm looking back in the early years and kind of think about some of the records I've tried to find on ancestors who came over in the first half of the 19th century. Our government wasn't paying that much attention back then, was it? Not really. They wanted to know how many people were coming in, 
but they weren't as concerned about where they were coming from or if they had all of the right documentation or that kind of thing very early on. Were there really limitations on how many aliens could come into the United States in the early years? Not until the late 1800s. Around the time that Ellis Island opened up, they started monitoring that a lot more closely. Okay, and that probably had more to do with economics at that time, yes? Yes. They wanted to make sure that the people coming in were not going to become a burden on American society, that they had an occupation, that they had plans, that they had money on them already, that they weren't just going to come in and become a burden. That's quite a change from the beginning of the 19th century to the end, and it really kind of reflects the growth of the United States, right? I mean, we had a lot of land, there was a lot of expansion, so how many people mm -hmm. came in didn't matter nearly as much at that point. So when we talk about looking for passenger records early in the 19th century or even in the late 18th century, it's not always that easy, is it? No, it's very complicated, especially if your guy came alone. If he came in a group, then you have a much better chance of finding him. At what point would you say there's a cutoff where you say, okay, the hard times are over, it's getting much easier now to uh, find our person in the passenger list on the ships that were coming over? Well, passenger lists changed around the same time that naturalization papers changed, and that was the early 1900s where passenger lists started requesting a lot more information, like a point of contact back home and who you're going to in the United States and how much money you had on you. And you know, all of these things, they added up to creating a small portrait of the person immigrating. And you can look at that and say, okay, this person is not the right person. They're not my guy. I can move on. Mm -hmm. Where prior to that, you see a name, maybe a country of origin and an age. And if you're really lucky, you know, an occupation few other things, but you look at it and you're like, okay, he could be my guy, but there could be 20 other guys just like him. Yeah, right, especially if the name's too common and they're not traveling with people whose names you recognize from uh, later times here in the United States, right? Yes, exactly. So if you were researching in the earlier 19th century or even later, I guess, for that matter, considering what you've just said, how would people go about identifying their people? What would be the best way you would suggest? More often than not, the best way of identifying them, if they didn't come with family that you can identify, is to basically take the people that they were arriving with and research them in the United States. Say, for example, a recent case I worked on, the guy that I thought was the ancestor came with two guys named Victor and Casper. And the passenger list didn't say how these men were related, but they all had the same last name. It was Bowes, B-A-U-E-S. And I had a lot of fun with that one, indexers like indexing that U and N. And <laughs> oh, yes, the U and the N. That's always a problem. Mm -hmm. And what did I, you learn? I, well, eventually, when I got the family back to their hometown, there was no Victor and no Casper. So I still don't know if the guy in the passenger list was the ancestor. But I ended up finding the correct guy in the correct town because I did more research on him in the United States and found somebody in a census who was specifically named as his brother. And I researched that man also. So between Ferdinand and this other brother, Heinrich, I was able to find the family and prove, hey, these two guys were born at the right time, and they have the same parents, and everything matches, so it's definitely the right people. But I still wonder if that Ferdinand and that passenger list was the right guy. Mm. I would have to go research Casper and Victor more thoroughly. Yeah, and maybe sure. they were brothers, they went somewhere else, or cousins even. Yep, that's my theory right now, is that they were cousins, because yeah, everything else fits. 
It's a lot harder in the 19th century. There are emigration records, though, right, that sometimes are much more detailed. I certainly know, uh, having done a little Dutch research on my wife's side, that there were uh, a lot more details in the records of people leaving the countries than from the records that were created when they arrived here. Yes, and that's because when they were leaving the country, they had to receive permission to leave wherever it was that they were leaving. And it wasn't necessarily the country they had to receive permission from. It was the town or the county because they were a commodity. I mean, you think about a lord who owns a manor and he has all of these farmers working on it. If they start leaving in droves without permission, he's going to run out of workers really fast. And and so what's his authority to give them permission to leave or not leave? He owns the land that they live on, that they work, and they are, I don't want to use necessarily the idea of serfdom because that was earlier that that was going on and more in northern Germany. But in a lot of places in Europe, the people were tied to the manors and estates that they worked on, that they had some legal obligation to it. Interesting. And so they had to receive permission to emigrate. They had to prove that they had paid all of their debts that they weren't leaving for legal reasons. You know, they weren't running away from something. Right. Well, they, as they, had, they, they would, had, right? There was military conscription was kind of a big thing sometimes. Yes. And in cases where they had already served in the military, they would file that paperwork with the local authorities and say, hey, look, I already did my military service. I, I should be free to go. But if they were trying to avoid military conscription, more often than not, they didn't leave with their entire family in broad daylight having requested permission. A lot of the guys avoiding military conscription would leave alone and kind of wander off and disappear and never come back. And where would their records show up then on the sending end? On the sending end, the ones that avoided military conscription successfully, you would wind up finding their names in lists of people who didn't show up for military conscription. And I have a story about one of those. Really? Yes. So I was researching a family in New York. The client's ancestor was a woman. She was born around 1850 in France, and they didn't know a lot about her, and they wanted to know where she came from. So I researched in New York, and I found out that she actually lived with her parents in New York before she got married, which they didn't know before. So I found her maiden name. I found her parents in New York. And I researched the entire family, found all of the siblings. And then her youngest sibling was a boy who was one year old when the family left France. And they had all of the right permissions to leave, at least as far as I can tell. But he didn't show up for military conscription when he was 21, I guess it was. And so in 1867, he didn't show up for military service. And his name and his parents' names showed up on a list saying, this guy didn't show up. This is where he was born. This is who his parents are. And that name is now in a book called the Alsace Emigration Book. And they pulled that information from those lists of soldiers who never showed up. What a great source. And that that book is where I got the name of the hometown. And I would never have found it if I hadn't researched this woman's brothers and sisters, but she only had the one brother. And then off you go with the lineage further back into France. Fantastic. What about name changes? I mean, we often hear about the name changes at Ellis Island. Of course, there, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of mythology surrounding that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, names weren't really changed at Ellis Island. I think of the children's movie, uh, An American Tale, where they come into the port and their names are being written down. And the sister says, why did they change my name to Tilly? It is such a widespread myth that they even put it in movies, but it didn't happen like that. 
the guy at the port wrote down the name exactly as it was told to him. And so as long as you can figure out the phonetics of what the guy thought he heard, then their names were preserved at the port. And the way he might have written it down, that's why the spelling can be so variant. And, of course, a lot of those immigrants, when they came into the country, they wanted to change their name so they'd fit in more here. Yes, exactly. And that's what I was just going to bring up is if a German immigrant came into a very Irish-dominated area, they would potentially change their name to something that sounded a little bit more Irish. If a Jewish immigrant came into an area that was more, I don't know, Hungarian, they would make sure that their name, whatever they slightly modified it to, would mesh well with the Hungarian names in the neighborhood. People wanted to fit in with their neighbors. So let's talk real quick as we're running out of time. Let's talk about trying to narrow down the times during which you should search for your ancestors in these passenger lists. One thing I thought of right away was uh, city directories, because having a lot of ancestry in New York myself, if you can find out when somebody magically appeared, you might figure you're within a year or two of when they arrived. That's also true of when they died, that you can use directories to narrow that down between census years. Yeah, directories are really useful for a lot of that stuff. Other things that can provide clues for when your ancestors showed up, particularly, I like to start with census records because they give you a feel for where the family was at every 10 years, and you can create a nice framework to work from, and you can say, okay, well, the family stayed in this county, but they moved town, so they probably attended church in one of these two or three places, and then you can search there in the church record, and church records can even give you a clue as to when they immigrated, because pastors were nice and, and wrote notes in there all the time about when people showed up. They might even have a letter introducing the family from the parish back home in Europe. And if you have that in the parish registers tucked into the book somewhere, then you're gold because, you know, you know exactly when they came because they have that dated letter. So much stuff to find and so many stories to discover. And uh, what a great way to go about it. Marissa, what are some of the best sources that you would suggest for uh, searching through passenger records? I would start with websites like FamilySearch. Ancestry.com and MyHeritage.com. And I want to put in a plug for MyHeritage because, you know, those other contacts I was talking about a minute ago, the person back home or the person you're going to, those are indexed on MyHeritage. So you can look through the list of people and you can say, oh, well, I knew this person's father's name and go down through the list and say, oh, it says that her father is her point of contact. That's my ancestor. Without having to look at every single record, you can just, you know, glance through the indexed information. She's Marissa Gardner, researcher with Legacy Tree Genealogist. Thanks so much, Marissa. Great insight. Appreciate it. Thank you. As you know, I love to find ordinary people with extraordinary finds, find out how they did it, and get some of the details. And uh, one of those people is my next guest, Andrew Malikoff. He is in Long Beach, Nassau County. He's on Long Island in New York. And uh, Andrew, welcome to Extreme Genes. It's great to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've been uh, cruising around the Internet, and I ran into this great story about your discovery about your father and a little of his background you weren't familiar with. Let's talk about that. What got you going on this? Well, my father, he's the oldest of uh, four siblings, two younger brothers, and then below both of them, a sister. And they grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Their parents were immigrants from Russia around the turn of the 20th century. And my uncle was the last surviving brother. He just died one year ago, and my aunt is still alive. But when I used to spend time with him, I always loved it because he was the family historian, a great storyteller. 
and he would rapid fire tell stories. And there was one that he told me that kind of stuck in my head and, and I needed to know more about it. And what it was, was he told me that my father, who was actually a great high school athlete, all the boys were, they, they grew up poor, but they had a great close family and they were all very athletic, that when he was graduated from high school sometime in the late 1930s, that this was around the same time that Adolf Hitler had been about six years into his power. He came to power in 33. Around that time, this group formed in the United States, which was first known as the Friends of New Germany, and then it became the German-American Bund. Ooh. They represented the center of Nazi activity, which was very active in the uh, Newark, New Jersey area where they grew up, which is the biggest city in New Jersey. Now, what did these guys do? What did they call them, the Bundists? Yeah, they called them the Bundists. That was the, the you know, the later name was the German-American Bund. They dressed like the brown shirts in uh, Nazi Germany. And there was probably at their peak around 25,000 of them in this area. Ooh. They held rallies. There's a famous rally people could find if they did a search at Madison Square Garden. And in the Newark area, they also they had meetings and rallies in that area. And so the story my uncle told me was that my father was recruited by uh, an infamous local gangster. He recruited some young guys, I suppose guys who were fit and tough, and he had them rounded up and taken over to where these bun meetings would be held. And if there was any kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric, they would throw stink bombs, which is kind of like a ammonia sulfide, Ooh. into the window, and that would get everybody scattering out like cockroaches when you turn the lights on. It's <laughs> a good comparison. Yeah, and as soon as they would go outside, they would just beat the heck out of them. So these were, you know, young, tough Jewish guys who were taking on uh, the Nazis here in uh, the United States. Wow. And so your uncle said your dad was a part of this whole thing and you've been researching it ever since. Yeah, that's right. He, you know, you know, he just mentioned it, as I said, it was almost in passing because he had so many stories. So I didn't know too much about it. So I had not too long ago read the novel that Philip Roth, who is a great Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote. And it was called The Plot Against America, which incidentally, you know, was a HBO yeah. miniseries that aired just this past March. Yes, I saw it. The idea of the story was if there was a national threat similar to what the European Jews confronted in 1930s, what might happen to a Jewish family living in the neighborhood he, Roth, grew up in, which incidentally was the very same neighborhood that I grew up in as a child in Newark. In reading the book, it was as if I was revisiting the house I lived in, the neighborhood, the elementary school I went to, because it was all right there. Sure. Again, it was as if there was a rise of Nazis here in this country. And so, but I had to do a little bit more research. So I just plugged in a few keywords and I came upon a couple of articles that were written recently, specifically about the German American Bund in Newark. 
Okay. And as it turned out, what my uncle told me was validated in these stories. And the gangster, who his name was Abner Longy Zwillman, he, he was like the top mob guy in the New Jersey area, operated out of the Newark area. And uh, again, he's someone, if someone does research, they'll, they'll find out all about him and his connections. And he was Jewish. And despite all of the criminal things that he did, he was a staunch defender of his people. And he felt something had to be done. So he recruited some Jewish gangsters, boxers, and I assume other people the word got out and somehow my father and I would assume maybe some of his friends uh, became involved in this. Wow. And, and did they have a name for the group that this gangster put together? Yeah, that's really interesting because I didn't, you know, again, my uncle didn't tell me about this, but through the research, what I found out is that they were, they called themselves the Minutemen. Oh, <laughs> a little throwback to the revolution. Exactly, because that name signified their readiness during that time to fight the British at a minute's notice. And so this group wanted to emulate them and fight against the Nazis. And so that's how they referred to themselves. And was this group repressed then over time as a result of these efforts and maybe others from the government? You know, I don't know specifically, but it was just a couple of years later that my father joined the army in 1941 and served there till 1945. And I think as things started to look bad for Nazi Germany, that their influence, uh, I'm sure, waned over that time. But of course, we all know that there continue to be elements, uh, neo-Nazi elements here in the United States. So it was never a group that really disappeared. It just morphed into different shapes and, and forms that we hear about now, even if you know, recall the Charlottesville incident when sure. there were these young guys wearing khakis and just uh, yeah, short they're sleeves, back. Yeah. collared shirts with torches chanting, uh, Jews will not replace us. So they haven't disappeared completely. No. Tell me about your uncle. Was he pretty proud of your dad? Yes, he was. He was he was about six years younger, and they were both pretty talented athletes. And he looked up to him, and I'm sure when he was younger, idolized him and never missed an opportunity to uh, to tell me that. He he actually lived, my uncle, till uh, 96. He, he died a year ago. I fortunately got to see him a few months before that. But yeah, he did look up to him. They were very close-knit, tight family. What a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that and uh, how you found it, because I think those are the kinds of things that inspire a lot of people to, to dig into some of those things they may have heard or maybe an article they found somewhere in a box. You never know what you're going to come across. That's right. And uh, I really appreciate your uh, recognizing that. And I was uh, pleased to be able to share this with your listening audience. He's Andrew Malikoff. He's from Long Beach, uh, Long Island. Thanks so much for sharing the story, Andrew. And uh, maybe we'll talk to you again sometime. Looking forward to it. Sometimes the things we find about our parents surprise us just a little bit when we thought we knew them so well. Well, David returns here, and uh, David, this question is from Jennifer in Boise, Idaho, and she says, Dave, I remember you talking about finding old school records, something about your grandmother a while back. How did you find them, and what are in them? 
Good question, Jen. And I remember this, Dave. Wasn't this something like from the 19-teens, your grandmother's report cards or something? That's exactly what they were. It was about 30 years ago. I had known my grandmother had been my only grandparent who had graduated high school. We have a photo of her graduation gown, a beautiful white dress. It almost looks like a wedding dress. Big bow in her hair, very Edwardian-looking picture. And I always wanted to say, well, I wonder how Nana did in school. Now, my grandmother had already died, so I wasn't going to get browbeat for looking into this. And I figured curiosity kills the cat. Why not? I contacted the local school superintendent's office. And I said, my grandmother went to high school there, 1909 to 1914. Do you know if you have any of the transcripts of when she went to school? Because I figured I'd figure out what grade school she went to. And that's one of the things that you normally find. Right. But they didn't have the transcripts. They had her actual report card <laughs> signed by her parents. Oh, wow. My great-grandparents. So now I have my great-grandparents' signature for the first time on the original report cards. They didn't send me photocopies because they determined, and this is kind of sad, that they had these old records downstairs and they really didn't need to keep them. I called them back and I said, please consider giving them to the Historical Society, but thank you for sending me my grandmother's report card. Wow. I mean, that's such a great story. And they didn't do it, though, right, as I recall? I do remember contacting the Historical Society a few years ago, just inquire, and it doesn't sound like they made it there. Ooh. My own hometown had the same problem. Our first high school started in 1865. And I got notice about five years ago that they were going to get rid of my school records from the high school office. And I said, well, I'll get them. They're genealogically important. And they were set to destroy them. I said, you know, you have a lot of older school records in the vault dating back to students from the teens and the 20s and the 1890s. It would be great to get those. And they're like, nope, can't save them. We have to have permission from the person. They basically just dumped them. And I wish I knew where the dumpster was, to be perfectly honest. Wow. But when they were tearing our old high school down, our principal said, are you interested in these five books? And they were the actual grade books for the high school from 1895 to 1910. They were all of the school records that I thought were going to be destroyed. Somebody had squirreled them away in a closet. So in answer to the yeah. question, then basically, there's a lot of luck involved in mm, really finding is. something Super- from that far back, right? Right, it is. And so you really want to start on the local level, the superintendent of schools. Now, it could be a town or city level office, or it could be a county level office that oversees all the schools in, say, a district or in a county. But that's really where you want to start. And then if you don't find them, you know, you want to look at the local public libraries, the historical societies, that sort of thing. Archives, um, you yeah. You may not find, yeah, because you may find that they're there, but there are other opportunities for you. You might find a yearbook in a public library, historical society. You may find a newspaper article about the graduation, that sort of thing. So there are ways of getting other sources, but for the most part, start with a superintendent of schools and then look for archives and historical societies and libraries. I mean, the bottom line is what you found, obviously, hugely rare, even 30 years ago, to get something from the mm-hmm. 19 teens of your grandmother. It's just one of those oh, right. incredible scores. It's not a common thing. Again, the biggest archives on your family are typically within the descendants' homes all around the country. To me, the most amazing stuff I've ever found has been through other cousins. All right, time for another question. It's Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. David Lambert is back with me as we take this question from Lamar in Odessa, Kansas. 
And he says, uh, guys, I had an ancestor I heard was in the movies. Are there any databases that can help me research this person? Good question, Lamar. I, I think we both know the answer to this one, David. Well, I think that is very true, and it would be the Internet Movie Database or IMDB.com. Yeah, there's a in lot I- of info there. It'll tell you what movies they were in. And can I tell mm-hmm. you, Lamar, this is kind of fun. If you find out what they're in, you can often go to eBay and find people who have digitized these old movies and will sell you one for like five bucks. And then from that, you can potentially take photographs of your people from out of these old movies, especially the old silent ones. How fun would that be? Well, isn't there a scene with your mother at a party in some movies? Oh, yeah. My mom was in a bunch of movies in the 40s, bit Mm -hmm. parts, very small parts, and she wound up in IMDb. And I have a son who's in Hollywood now. He's a filmmaker also, so he's got his own page. But, yes, I was able to find a bunch of flicks she was in and found copies of them on eBay and also found some on YouTube where they just had the the whole flick right there so I could go through and and find her scenes in there. And it was really fun to show to my grandchildren when she was a beautiful young actress, you know? Jeez, that's great. Well, you know, the other thing eBay is good for when you find somebody, you can buy the old movie posters, the lobby cards that they used to have, or photographic stills from the movie. Sure. So also, it's a stuff you can get. And not just IMDb is good for directories. I mean, heck, there are directories that we use all the time. For me, I use RetroSheet.org, and RetroSheet has every Major League Baseball player that ever played. Right. Um, and this is true for really all kinds of occupations. We're not limited to baseball players and actors and actresses. But uh, there is a railroad database, the Railroad Retirement Database, which can tell Mm -hmm. you about who your people work for. And then you can research the companies and and the areas they may have been in. What's the one for physicians, David? It seems to me I've run across one. Yeah. Yeah, the deceased physicians directory. I've seen it as a book, and I'm pretty sure there must be an online version of it, too. I'm a traditionalist. I like to hold books in my hands on occasion. Right. But yeah, and there's great. I mean, in college alumni, if you find a college graduate, I mean, you could use things like classmates.com, uh, directories for students. I mean, uh, there's so much out there. That, and of course, military databases, you know, which is an occupation in its own right. And a lot of these will give you a lot of information about them going back to the deceased physicians. Uh, my wife mm-hmm. had a great, great, great uncle who died like in 1911 or something. And they give a little mm-hmm. write up on him and talked about his life and where he lived and his family and all kinds of information in there. So it's like, ah, good. I like this database. <laughs> this is a good one. So you got to really kind of figure out who your people are, what their field was and see what databases might be out there for them. Exactly. And use that wonderful hidden database google.com yeah it's <laughs> it, you know it's kind of funny i have done that with people i found stuff there and they go how did you find this incredible information they say well write this down get your pencil okay hold on and they, they get their paper and and i say g o o g and then they oh, get it and it's like oh man they're they're a little taken back by how silly they feel for ignoring the most obvious place for research. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's David, amazing. thank you so much for the help. And uh, thanks also, Lamar, for the question. It's a good one. And, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, talk to you next week. 
All righty, we'll talk to you then. All right, and thank you all for joining us this week. Talk to you next week, and remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.